Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to try something new. We're going to do a lightning pod where we kind of compile a few different topics that don't necessarily need their own episode, but just cover a bunch of different ground quickly and succinctly to answer some questions that we've got from listeners. And we're excited today because we're talking about I-bonds, the federal bond that's currently yielding over 7%, what we think about that. We're also going to talk about emergency funds and disability savings. Justin, let's start with I-bonds. You want to paint the context for our listeners, what those are, and just at a high level, some of the mechanics about them before we dive into what we think? Great. So uh, when we think about bonds, uh, you know, interest rates right now are just exceptionally low. So an I-bond currently yielding, currently giving you a return of more than 7% per year, that should get your attention pretty quickly. A low risk or even a better way to phrase it, rather than giving you a risk tolerance scale, I think a, a an asset that is not correlated with the stock market. So a you know, a, a good bond fixed income source, uh, giving you more than 7% per year is very unique. We really need to go back a long, long time in order to reliably get uh, 7% in a, a government bond. Uh, so an I-bond being a uh, government bond that does have a cap on how much you can invest in it, but it does have an interest rate um, that is set and that interest rate currently is uh, is is giving you more than 7% per year. So that's a quick rundown. And uh, Jared, I'll let you go into more color on this, but uh, I'll also just pose a question. Let's put this in a, into context. What is 7% plus in a bond return? When we think about what bonds are doing right now, what would you expect in a return from a bond portfolio right now outside of I-bonds? Yeah. So a big portion of that is duration based, right? Like, cause typically, usually in bond markets, the longer you lend your money out for, the higher rate should be. But let's, we'll use the five to 10 year range because, you know, we'll talk about some of the intricacies of that in a minute. But for a five to 10 year bond portfolio, you're looking in the 2% range, give or take, Very give low. or take 50 basis points, yes. yeah, which is really low. And a uh, historical context there, if we, if we think about what a bond portfolio has typically done, uh, in the early 1980s, interest rates were exceptionally high. And some of our listeners can can probably resonate. Uh, if you were trying to buy a house in the 80s, uh, you might recall interest rates uh, with, with double digit numbers in your home loan. So 80s, amazing time to be a bond investor, not a great time to uh, borrow money. Uh, and now the reverse. Now we're now we're at the different different end of the spectrum. Where if you're borrowing money to buy a house, for instance, you're going to have a really attractive uh, interest rate. Granted, asset prices are dramatically higher, uh, so you need it. But the uh, being a bond investor today much more difficult being a bond investor today than it was 40 years ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. But to paint some color on Justin, what Justin's talking about the seven percent rate mechanically. I-bonds, they exist. Uh, the government created them in the late 90s to keep pace with inflation. So when determining what the interest rate is, there's there's two components. There's a fixed rate 
And then there's another component that is the semi-annual inflation rate. So these these rates reset every every six or so months. The combination of those two items create the composite interest rate. And it's important to note that because there's a, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, it's connected to CPIU, which is an index that tracks consumer inf- inflation. So that has heated up. And so because that's heated up, that the computation of, of that relative to the interest rate has caused those rates to go up. But if you look at history, we've endured a decade of very low inflation. So if you look at the historical rates of these bonds, while they're 3.5% for the semi-annual rate, uh, 7% on an annualized basis, over the last decade, they've been fractions of, of what the rates currently are. So it's important to remember that well, you know, if inflation is running above average, hopefully these bonds should keep place with that. But for the last decade, that that hasn't been the case. Inflation has been really mild to historical terms, and the inf- the historical rates of these bonds have reflected that. So there is a variable component. But if if the primary mechanism is is keeping pace with inflation, these these could potentially have a spot in your portfolio. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't think it, it needs to, it can't be said enough. There's no way that you can expect, reasonably expect a diversified lower risk bond portfolio to even touch anywhere near 7%. That should not be your expectation. So when you hear this I bond can uh, give you a return of 7% plus per year, you're probably thinking, well, I want to put all of my money into this. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, how do you structure this? How much can you put in it? Stuff like that. Yeah, this will kind of lead into pros and cons related to oil and gas professionals. One of the things that we don't like about these bonds, there's a $10,000 cap per person and they're not marketable securities. So you can't go on the open market or buy them in your Fidelity account. You have to go to Treasury Direct's website. So you can buy these bonds on an annual basis up to $10,000 per person. So a couple could uh, potentially buy $20,000 a year in these bonds, but they would have to go through Treasury Direct, uh, the government website to purchase these bonds and hold them in your account. That effectively also means that they are only going to be a an a, essentially an after-tax bucket. Um, you're not going to be taking your 401k and, and purchasing $10,000 worth. You're not going to be taking your IRA and doing that. That's exactly right. Um, so that, you know, for me, as I think about our oil and gas retiree listeners, that is one of the cons, right? One of the things we do from a financial planning perspective is try to simplify, you know, your life. And so these accounts are, are pretty easy to set up, but it's just another an account and thing to manage. So if you're a retiree with a fixed income portfolio, uh, let's say you're 60, 40, and you have $5 million, that would mean you have about $2 million in fixed income. So if, if you're buying Twenty thousand dollars a year of these bonds. It takes it takes a lot of decades to twenty thousand. You mean for you and your spouse? Correct. 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 Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. Good call out. But yeah, if if you're accumulating these bonds as a percentage of your fixed income portfolio, that's only one percent a year you could add to the maximum, right? So, while while the return is great, you know, is it really going to move the needle for somebody while adding investment complexity? You know, that's it's a very personal decision. But as as we think in the context of our oil and gas retirees or people with significant assets uh, heading towards retirement, you know, you have to, you have to decide, is it worth the additional administrative? And some people would say, yes, I want to squeeze every maximum dollar uh, they can. And some, you know, may not, may not move the needle or, or be worth the time or the additional investment complexity. 
That's well put. And on that uh, on that note, so you think about simplicity. There's a big you know bonus in in every part of your financial life to make things a little bit more simple and accessible. But kind of a a cousin, very related tangent of that. This is something that when a client comes to us interested in this, you have to go to Treasury Direct and you have to do this. Um, and so if let now when we say ten thousand per person, it can be for you, your spouse. You could also do it for all of your children as well. But that has to be done through Treasury Direct. So that is a con. Um, I don't think it's a it's not a deal breaker by any means. But certainly we do have a lot of families that come to us because they don't want to do that, right? Uh, they, they don't have interest in opening a Vanguard account, building their own portfolio and tracking this all themselves. They're essentially taking this and, and saying, hey, I, I want you guys to do this for me. I'm not interested in spending my time doing this. Uh, so that is a con. It's not a deal breaker, but uh, you have to go to Treasury Direct, follow all the steps and do it for yourself, your spouse and any children that you want to do this for as well. Yeah. And to be clear, like Justin said, this was an after-tax bucket. So these bonds are usually federally income taxable. So not subject to state or local taxes, but federally income taxable. So it's important to remember that because if you're a high earner in a really high tax bracket, you see that 7% yield and get excited. But also, you know, if you're in the highest marginal tax bracket, 37%, you've lost a third of your return right there because that is that interest is income taxable to you. There's one caveat that we don't have time to cover, but uh, there is a potential to use this for qualified educational expenses and to not pay any tax on that interest. So could be a potential use case for a 529 alternative. But the other thing I want to touch on with I-bonds is they're they're less liquid. So, you know, you have to hold them for 12 months. And then if you sell them any time in the next, in the first five years that you own them, you have a three month interest penalty, right? That may or may not eat into the return of that portfolio. So it's a little less liquid because you have to hold them for at least one year. And if you think about, you know, we think one of the better inflation hedges is a globally diversified equity equity portfolio. And one of the big proponents of bonds is to kind of have a source of funds so that you're not turning uh, unrealized losses into realized losses in the equity markets when volatility ticks up, right? But if you can't access these I bonds, you know, they're they're a little less liquid than traditional bonds that you could sell on the secondary market. So that's another one of the things we don't like about them, especially as we think about from a portfolio positioning perspective, what we get excited about using bonds for, which is as a source of funds for living expenses when volatility strikes. That's a really good point. And uh, 7% is a fantastic rate. But again, if you're in that highest tax bracket, all of a sudden 7% is now take off a couple hundred basis points there. Uh, that is still, even if you're making 4 or 5%, that's still a, a very good uh, return. But you can't, you can't get around that $10,000 max. So if you have $100,000, and you know, ten percent is going to be in bonds. Well, that's this is a great solution. Uh, but if you have ten million dollars and you're looking to allocate that capital, just like you noted, Jared, that's it's going to be a very very small portion. Uh, not going to move the needle a whole lot. I think we hit the nail on the head. It's it's a obviously an incredibly attractive interest rate. And if you want to go to Treasury Direct and take the steps, and if it makes sense in your situation, uh, you're really hard to beat that interest rate anywhere right now. But yeah, those are some of the pros and cons. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I will say these these can go negative, right? This is And this is the last thing we'll say. I-bonds can go negative. So if you look for the six-month period in uh, May 2009, the uh, semi-annual interest rate was negative 2.78%. 
because there was deflation because of the uh, related to great financial crisis. So, you know, these move up in inflationary environments, but they can move down and they can go negative. So tread lightly, be thoughtful, contact uh, a trusted professional to get their feedback as to how it relates to your situation. Okay. I bonds check. Next on our list, this was a listener question. We, I like this one. Um, I'm just going to read it out exactly how they wrote it, and you can kind of pick a piece and we'll go there. So they wrote, uh, what to do with an emergency fund, how much, where is it kept, and how and when is it used? I love this question. Quick context too. I think emergency funds, it's, it's easy when you hear the word emergency fund to think, well, this is kind of a Dave Ramsey baby step. So this is, you know, if you're 25, 30 years old, you need to think about this. No, I think emergency, I think this question is relevant, whether you're 30, whether you're 50 or 60. And I also think it's, it's relevant, uh, regardless of your asset level. Um, if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you need to think through this, but also if you have $10 million, you're going to be spread out across so many different tax registrations. And if you're decumulating, if you're taking retirement income and doing tax planning, this is still a, a tricky issue. Uh, where do you build your emergency fund? Uh, should it be subject to income tax or not? And, and what's, what are the different ways to, to be flexible with that? So yeah, let's dive in. Yeah. So let's start with the rule of thumb, right? Which is a helpful concept, but rarely where you actually land because financial planning is so personal, right? So general rule of thumb, uh, people would say for dual income households, at least three months of income. Set three aside, months of living expenses. Yeah, three months of, of living expenses. So if, yeah, three months of living expenses, exactly right. And if you're a single income household, at least six months of living expenses, of course, because if the probabilities, if, if if one spouse became unemployed, you still have one spouse to supplement that, right? So that is kind of the book answer, no context, no thought related to oil and gas uh, in our demographic. Justin, what do you what do you think about that related to our target audience and who we're making this podcast for? Yes. So if you wanted to go get your CFP for some reason, uh, you will find that exact, Jared, everything you just mentioned, that is explicitly in the CFP textbook um, for what is necessary for an emergency fund. I think three months can be a little bit light, but it also can be supplemented in other ways. And so, you know, if you are spending, let's say you're spending $20,000 a month, well, $60,000 is a lot of money to be sitting in an emergency fund. And you don't necessarily want four times that amount sitting in cash. Remember, inflation is a real risk and uh, everything that's, that's, that's in cash is going to significantly lag inflation. And so, you know, I think that uh, the one caveat, you know, you mentioned this for our demographic, if, if you're working in a, in a company and you've seen, gosh, two, three, four different major layoffs in the last few years, uh, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, I may not be completely immune forever from this. And I don't think it's the end of the world to not just ask, what does the CFP textbook say? But the second question is, what makes you feel comfortable with your emergency fund? That's an important question and, and you should ask it. If you're spending 10000 a month and you're, you're dual income, so that means 30000 but you're thinking, I would feel much better with seventy or 80000 uh, that's okay. Yeah, I would totally agree. Because of the velocity of kind of turnover and the cyclicality of, you know, oil and gas transitions, I would shade up, 
right? And just be a little more, little more conservative, especially, you know, kind of like Justin, what you're talking about to kind of sleep well at night and allow you, you know, in the event of a layoff to be thoughtful about selecting your next opportunity. Or if, you know, you lose a job related to the downturn, not a lot of employers with maybe your skill set are potentially hiring till the price of oil rebounds. So with all that in mind, I, you know, I, I would shade, I would shade higher. And the other thing I would add too is, you know, it may not be financially optimal, but if 200 grand is the number that you need in the bank account to aggressively invest your investment assets and help you sleep well at night. So you're not worried about market volatility. That's a big, that's a big proponent too, right? Is, is not only, Hey, do I have enough cash to weather the storm, but do I have enough cash psychologically to where you know, volatility doesn't impact me in the way that that it would ha- if I were to have less cash, right? Because the best portfolio is one you can stick with, right? So, the, so the way you manage volatility is uh, owning assets that aren't as volatile, and by having cash balances that can kind of provide when volatility strikes. So, that's another component that would also be, you know, you should consider as you're thinking about, okay, what is an appropriate amount of emergency fund for me? That's a really simple investment principle, but it's one that you have to have. When markets crash, and and uh, you know we don't say if markets are going to crash. Historically, it's happened every five six years over the last almost century. So knowing that that's going to happen, you are going to be very well suited over the next several decades if you're able to compound your wealth without trying to get in and out of the market when markets go crazy. Uh, so if a higher emergency fund gives you the foundation, if you will, if if a higher emergency emergency fund gives you the ability to withstand the next market crash without wanting to sell and get out of the market, uh, then, then that's worth it. Absolutely. So, so that, that's kind of, you know, in terms of how much, where should it be held? Where do you keep emergency funds? I've got a few different thoughts on this. Um, let's go age by age. So if you're listening to listening to this and you are 25, I think it's okay to have some in a checking account. Obviously, that's where the bulk of your emergency fund should be per textbooks. Uh, but I also think it's okay if you're that young and you're making Roth IRA contributions. Uh, remember, uh, Roth IRAs, all of your contributions and Roths can come out penalty-free and tax-free. And so I don't, I guess my point in sharing that is, I don't have any problem at all if you're making sure that you max out your Roth each year as you build your emergency fund. And so some of our listeners probably have kids uh, that are in this stage of life as well. Uh, so I don't, I don't hate that idea at all as you're, as you're 25. You know, I would, I would not let a year go by where you skip a Roth contribution. Um, I'd, I'd put it that way. Now, another, let's go to the other side of the coin. Uh, this is, I don't know, I don't know if I've seen many financial talking heads talk about this. I am great as you hit 55, 59 and a half and onward with building your emergency fund within a qualified retirement account. And why do I say that? I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, But the reason is tax planning. Uh, Let's just use a really quick example and say that you only have, um, you know, X amount of dollars in a taxable account, but most of your wealth is in a pre-tax account. Well, If you're in a situation where you are facing really large required minimum distributions later in life, starting at age 72, the IRS forces you to take out a portion of your IRA 401k. Well, the greatest thing that that you can do uh, in many cases to lower your lifetime tax bill is to do Roth conversions at the 0% bracket, 10% bracket, 12% bracket, and maybe 22-24%. But the, the only way that you're able to hit the 0% and 10% bracket is if you have taxable or non-retirement funds to live off of. 
So if that's your emergency fund and you're 62, yes, absolutely spend all of that down in order to do Roth conversions at the zero 10% tax level. And again, you know, certainly speak with your advisor to map out Roth conversions properly. Hitting your optimal lifetime tax rate is an enormous deal and it is absolutely worth liquidating your emergency fund in a checking account, and then you can rebuild that emergency fund in a qualified retirement plan or an IRA. But I would say cash in these accounts, right? Counts as emergency fund, not equity, right? So if you're 100% equity in this account, that's that's not an emergency fund, right? Because like, what makes an emergency fund an emergency fund is you don't know when an emergency will strike. So at any moment, you can convert these assets to cash with minimal price fluctuation and or penalties, right? So what, what Justin's talking about is, you know, the only caveat asterisk I would add there is cash in those accounts. And that, you know, kind of touching on that, that's a couple of places, you know, you could also consider, maybe you could ladder CDs. One of the things we don't like with CDs is there's typically a penalty if you redeem early, right? And the thing about emergencies is the reason you have it, a rainy day fund, you don't know when you're going to need it, right? So getting penalized on taking those funds out kind of defeats the purpose of an emergency fund. And then you could potentially ladder CDs so that you have enough liquidity on an annual basis, but rates aren't compelling enough to it may not be compelling enough to make that administrative headache worth it. Uh, and then kind of like what we were talking about with I-bonds, the the lack of liquidity in the one-year required holding period may not make those funds good for emergency fund purposes. So in a high-yield high high yield savings account, uh, whatever that means these days, uh, could could be a great place for it as well. When can you access it? How easy is it to access it? Those are those are the metrics that you think about with an emergency fund. So why did I mention 55, 59 and a half, and then in any time in your 60s? Well, that's because that's when an IRA after 59 and a half can be accessed penalty free. Uh, all of a sudden you have uh you you could essentially call those buckets liquid now when they they really weren't before. It's 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 a lot more cumbersome. And we won't go into this tangent, but there are ways to tap an IRA before 59 and a half. But my point in sharing that is when you hit 59 and a half, an IRA is so much more flexible than it is before. And I mentioned 55 because if you leave your employer in the year that calendar year that you turn 55, 401ks can be accessed penalty free. So there's some different metrics there, just navigating the IRS rules around early withdrawal penalties. Uh, but that's why there's some flexibility in where you hold things. Because as you're doing tax planning, you know, you might enter retirement with a lot of different tax registrations, different tax accounts, but it is important to us that we always have a source of funds that is not subject to any um, stock market risk and bond market risk. And so where that goes can kind of be a little bit flexible, but it is important to always have it. Awesome. So that was emergency fund. Next, let's move to disability insurance. I, I don't love disability insurance, but like I love talking about disability insurance because I think it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. So statistically, you're more likely to become disabled during your working age than you are to die, right? I think everybody, you know, life insurance get, is is the main, you know, the main entree where it has a lot of attention and eyeballs because, you know, the thought of dying is and leaving your loved ones is so scary. But becoming disabled, not only is it probabilistically more likely, the potential cash needed to cover that is substantial, right? Because 
disability requires increased care and then you continue to live, right? So that's another mouth to feed, more insurance to be paid. So, you know, the, the probability is higher. And I would argue the potential cash outlay of a disability event could be much higher. So it's interesting that, you know, people hear more about life insurance and disability when, when those two things I think are true. It can also be tricky. Uh, not only is the cash outlay uh, potentially a lot, but it's also a, a tricky deal to to navigate. Well, what if you're not just like we, what did we just finish talking about? Age 55 for 401ks, age 59 and a half for IRAs. It, it can be a little bit of an issue if you need to free up X number of dollars every month. And a lot of your wealth is in accounts that, that aren't accessible uh, very easily. And so, you know, I think uh, obviously I've I've got a a prime example here. This is now, gosh, if three four years ago, um, I was diagnosed with cancer, and so I I am you know a, a really good example of you know life insurance and disability insurance. I think the exact stat, Jared, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I want to say it's you are three or four times more likely to need disability insurance than than a have a life insurance event at a young age, and so. It can absolutely happen. And I go back to uh, to that that situation. And I mean, my goodness, you know, my wife had just given birth to our third child, um, our, our, our son, Peter. And this was two weeks uh, before we found out that I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so this is just an absolutely uh, v- very difficult life experience uh, that, you know, maybe I can talk about at length at, at another time. But it was such an incredible, incredible thing that we had a short-term disability policy uh, through my employer at the time that essentially made the financial ramifications just weren't a big deal. That's how important disability is. And, and obviously health insurance you know, plays a massive role in this as well. But it's just such a big deal to have to have a disability policy that when something happens, you're taking that massive concern off the table. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to be clear, there's two types of disability insurance. There's a short term policy, uh, which usually covers, you know, beginning from the day you're disabled up to usually about 180 days. So half a year, so six months, and then uh, a longer term disability policy that covers uh six months to usually normal retirement age as as defined by your retirement plan. So so that could theoretically be 30 years. I mean, it, it could it, long term disability is critical. I mean, it could it could come into play for a very long period of time, many years. That's right. And getting back to the emergency fund point, uh, your emergency fund could serve as a source of funds in the event of a short term disability, right? If you don't have short term disability coverage. But if your employer doesn't offer long-term disability, uh, it's definitely worth looking into. We see a lot of entrepreneurs without the coverage, uh, so that's you know definitely something that's really really important to all of our listeners to consider and make sure that they have buttoned up because for reasons that we discussed, right, probability being higher and the outlay being greater. A couple of nuances that that we want to add, kind of related to our listeners, to think about. Okay, what is my disability need? One of the big things to understand is like what wages are included in that, right? So if you're high performing in a large, it usually it's typically salary and bonus in some instances, but uh, each plan is different and you'll want to know what your plan covers. If you're an executive, a, a lot of your compensation is equity based and that's not included for earnings that are replaced. So if you need a certain amount to, uh, 
to live and, and equity compensation is a big piece of that, you you might not have enough coverage um, and that you'll want to update your financial plan accordingly uh, because uh, equity compensation isn't usually covered earnings. Critical point. Um, I want to just give a quick image. You should always be thinking about getting self-insured. So the destination is you being self-insured. That means you have financial freedom. You don't have to work uh, if you don't want to. And you have assets, sources of income that will provide um, during during times like this. So the reason that's critical is self-insurance, full financial freedom might be way over here. You might be back here. You know, you've got a long ways to go until you're self-insured. But that can also, this is also a progressive deal where over the years, you're going to need to have buckets where you're self-insured. For instance, you know, there could be uh, it's pretty cut and dry if you're making 200000 a year and your company offers a policy and, and you can make sure you have it uh, set up. Uh, and maybe you need a private policy as well. But it does get a little bit trickier where, well, what if you're an executive and you're making 800000 a year? Well, you're probably not spending 10000 a month. You might be spending thirty or 40000 a month. And in that case, not all of your compensation is necessarily going to be covered. And your disability coverage might be significantly less than what you're spending every month. And that's okay as long as you have some other assets uh, that are liquid. So back to that emergency fund conversation, how much of your assets uh, could be accessible um, over time? And so all of those things are, are critical. Did we talk about any occupation or own occupation yet? No, let's talk about that next. But one point I want to add, Justin, is typically employers cover 60, uh, uh, plans cover up to 60% of your earnings. Some plans are below that. And sometimes you can supplement to go slightly above that. So if your employer only covers 40% of your earnings, you could potentially get a private policy uh, to increase that coverage. But it's pretty much near impossible to replace your coverage 100% dollar for dollar. But so so there is kind of a cap, but depending on how much of your disability plan your employer is covering, there's a couple of ways to kind of shore up the gap, like Justin was talking about, with self-insurance being one or addition, an additional private policy. That's right. That's right. Okay. Quick definitions. Uh, this is this is really kind of a, the 101 course of, of disability insurance that you need to understand. Uh, the definitions on your disability insurance policy could be either any occupation. So one, any occupation or own occupation is the second one. Any occupation is probably uh, not something you want. So that just means that the um, barrier or definition of what does it mean for you to actually be considered disabled, and that means, so what will it take for your policy to actually pay out? It means that you need to be uh, disabled to the point that you could not have any occupation. The second one is own occupation. So is I think you can probably guess what the definition is. Uh, so that you know means that you have something going on in your life that your own occupation is not possible. Why is this so critical? Well, if if you are a uh, surgeon and you work with your hands, well, any occupation is a huge problem uh, because you could technically something could happen to your hands and uh, you could do a whole lot of other occupations. So your policy is not going to pay out. Uh, but any or own occupation, the second one I mentioned, that would pay out because your own occupation is at risk there. Yeah. And the level of specialization, right? You, if you can do any occupation because you can't do your specialty, right? The replacement rate of those earnings is substantially lower. So that's 
That's something to think about. And a lot of employer plans are own occupation and they transition to any occupation after two years. So it's important to understand what your plan is. And if you're obtaining private coverage to kind of weigh the weigh the pros and cons, because, you know, usually there is, you know, to the, for the more inclusive version of, of disability, it's, you know, it's more expensive, but just, just something to be aware of and to know. The final thing that I want to touch on related to disability is the taxation of premiums. So there are two options. You could have the long-term disability of benefit you could have the premiums be tax-free to you, so not a taxable benefit. But if if you choose not to have those uh, those premiums as a taxable benefit, if the policy pays out, those benefits are taxable, right? And on the inverse side, if you have the if let's say your employer pays for your plan and those uh, that benefit is imputed as wages on your W two. That because they have been taxed on the front end, the benefits would pay out tax free. Justin, why does this matter? So when you're thinking about what a disability benefit is, I mean those two those two terms that you just laid out, those are two different benefits, right? If it is a tax free benefit versus a taxable benefit, well, those are different numbers. Uh, what do we do when we serve families um, in this area? We do an analysis and we look at all of their different sources of income, all of their different assets, and we figure out a disability needs analysis. So that's going to provide this is how much coverage you need. Well, it's going to be a pretty important question. The coverage that you need is, is this uh, the after tax amount or, or can it withstand a, a tax income bill? And then you're left with the amount you need. So those are two different numbers. So it's important to understand is your benefit uh, subject to taxes or not? Yeah. And I would say that, you know, philosophically, I would, I would want my premiums to be taxable versus my benefits, right? Because if you think about if a policy pays out and you have a 20-year time horizon and hundreds of thousands of dollars of income being replaced, that's potentially millions of dollars subject to taxation compared to premiums in the hundreds of dollars on a monthly basis. You know, If you never tap the policy, you technically left some money on the table, but the reason you own insurance is to protect against the catastrophic event. Right. And if the catastrophic event does happen, you really want to position yourself well. So that's that's a consideration. Anything else on disability as we wrap up? Yeah. And I think it could all just like all financial planning matters. It could be really unique to your situation. If you are a single taxpayer and you're making a, a tremendously high income right now, well, you might want to get a tax deduction. You might want to pay with a, a pre-tax source and then your benefit is 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 not taxable, uh, but it could easily go the other way. And so, yeah, certainly something where it's uh, every every family, every person's going to be in a little bit different situation and trying to find the optimal situation for you is is important. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll wrap it up. Justin, 36 minutes. We targeted 10 minutes, a uh, 10 minute question. We got 12. So I feel pretty good. We can get long winded on these. So the we were we close. Yeah, send us, we send us more questions though. This was fun. Uh, if you yeah. listen, send us in a question. We uh, We would love to do this from time to time. Yeah, we, we appreciate all the questions and the engagement uh, and the emails from listeners. Uh, if you have any thoughts or ideas, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.